Brought to you by love. Did you know that unconditional love is really a love of acceptance? When you learn how to accept the people in your life, you feel better and you live healthy. Love, now available for free. Available while supplies last. Oh, wait, love never runs out. Never mind. Uh, so excited to have you all here, along with my, miss, my, my dear, dear friend, America's grandfather and America's greatest storyteller, Tom Thibodeau, who did have an accident and is, is uh, kind enough to grace us with his presence as he's in his bed with his foot up. Tom, do you want to just give everyone a background of a little incident you had? Well, um, I slipped on the ice and tore my quadricep that required uh, surgery and rehabilitation. Old guys in ice do not mix unless it's a gin and tonic. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my first line. The second line, I can tell you I'm lying in bed, but I know the stuff so well, I can teach it lying down. That's kind of <laughs> lame. But, but finally, my introduction to all of you is that in this last year, I'm a boomer who's become a Zoomer. And I want to thank all those people who are so technologically adept in order to keep older guys like me in, in the game. Isn't it extraordinary? A year ago, we were doing workshops on uh, the conflict between generations in the workplace, only to recognize in this last year how much we need each other. Thank all of you who are younger, technologically adept. You have kept the economy moving. You've engaged all of us through the use of technology. And we recognize that we also need the confidence and competence of those who are older supporting those who are younger. So I think this is an amazing opportunity for us right now in having a conversation because all of us have been through a, a year of transition together. It's a worldwide transition. And I'll talk more about this of how do we navigate uh, transitions with goodness and grace. Awesome. Tom, you guys are in for a really great treat because Tom has been a speaker at our Servant Leaders of Wisconsin group um, of the Fox Valley many, many times. And so I'm sure many of you are on this on the Zoom call to, to reconnect with Tom, his beautiful storytelling, his beautiful uh, outlook on life. And he's just a total national treasure. And you'll see that as you get to, as you, as he continues to share his stories. A little bit about Servant Leaders of Wisconsin, because typically we have about half uh, individuals that are brand new. We've been doing this for over 11 years. Typically, uh, as Tom mentioned, I mean, we were we were at uh, the Mark, uh, which is halfway between Appleton and Green Bay, and we would just be in person. There was no technology there. We didn't film it or Zoom it or, or anything of that nature. Um, and we would have roughly about 150 to 200 people show up. Now, 160 of you signed on to this, which we are super thrilled. And I know that has so much to do with Tom because he's just he, his reputation precedes him. He's been committed to this mission of servant leadership uh, his entire career. He teaches it, the first to have a master's in it. Uh, and it's right here in Wisconsin, located in La Crosse. Uh, our movement is not, it's, it's just grassroots. Uh, our company, Profit Co., um, started hosting these, having different guests like Tom share their journey in servant leadership. Uh, we define servant leadership as meeting the legitimate needs of others, being strict but fair, celebrating uh, victories along the way, encouraging people and treating everyone as unique and with dignity. And so that's been something we believed in, we built our company on, and we wanted to share that message. Uh, for the past, just a little bit of background before we get started, for the past 
21 years, our company, uh, for the most part, focused on advertising and marketing. And we changed our name from Profit Marketing to Profit Co. Yes, we still offer some marketing services for sure, but everything we produce is purpose-driven. And we've gotten really passionate. This whole movement has, uh, has just filled my heart and my soul when I meet with people like Tom. Uh, and I just get so fired up that we've made a full court press on leadership development uh, because we found that that's what really moves the needle. Organizational health is our, is our, is our, is our battle cry. And what we mean by that is, is how we communicate is how we grow, right? Communication is everything. And so we focus on communication uh, in business, which then pours out into life. And what's really fascinating, and Tom, I'm sure you've known this because you teach servant leadership. Isn't it amazing? I know corporations from around the country send um, executives to you of all different ages, right? I know you've had young folks, older folks, some folks, ooh, I'm raising my hand, and they fly to you, I know, in the summer, and they do an intense course. I think it's like three weeks, four weeks, not sure if you still do that. Um, but I know they leave changed. I know they leave changed because I've talked to several of them. They've been like, oh, I was in Tom's course. And it spills over into not their business, into their life. Like you, you come into this expecting one thing, and what you realize is this is a life thing. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I will, Joe. Uh, thank you so very much. Um, I'm, I'm rather old school. I'd rather say things that are true rather than things that are new. And what does we understand about, about leadership? Confucius, 2,500 years ago, said this, the first step in becoming a leader is to become a good person. Mm. The first step is becoming a good person. It's about that personal level of transformation of seeing and choosing and doing what is right and good and just each and every day. So as you've kind of talked about yourself now in Profit Co., for myself, I'm involved in terms of servant leadership, but the official title I've given myself is that I'm an ambassador for goodness. Every group that I speak to, every, every conversation that I have, I try to recognize the goodness in people's lives and reflect that back into their lives. I'm more and more convinced after this past year that the only thing that changes any situation is when good people get together and do good work. When good get people get together and do good work. And I've also recognized that your life and my life and everybody who's involved here today, our lives have been built on the service of good people making sure that we are healthy and safe and employed. Last year on this date, this is an amazing date, Joel, March 24th, 2020, our lives changed here at home. March 24th, a year ago today, I'm at home for the first time in 37 years. Instead of going to the office, instead of teaching, we were sheltering in place at that time. My wife, who is a volunteer at the poll here at our township, wanted to go and vote um, uh, in, the, in the primary. So we went down and we had an appointment. And as we're pulling into the parking lot of the township, my wife starts speaking to me and it's gibberish. I ask her my name. She doesn't know. I ask her to raise her right arm. She can't. I realize she's having a stroke. I pull around, I pull our truck around. I head for the nearest medical center, eight minutes away. I, even at that time, barricades were put up in the hospital parking lot. I had to pull around them to get to the back door of the emergency room, two nurses come out, one who has a wheelchair. They get my wife out of the truck. They 
move her into the emergency room. I want to park the truck, come in, check in, give my insurance number, and I'm given my first mask and told to sit 50 feet away from everybody else. I'm sitting there by myself, not knowing is my wife be paralyzed? What is she experiencing? Could this be death? 45 minutes later, they bring me into the room. My wife is hooked up to IVs and machines, and then they wheel in a television, and I find myself talking to a neurosurgeon who's in his home office, reading my wife's test results on his computer, telling everybody in the room what they needed to do in order to save my life, my wife's life. I can see his exercise bike over his right shoulder. And he looks at me and he says, your wife has a massive brain clot. We're going to have to do emergency neurosurgery. He starts to tell me about the risks, which can include paralysis or death. And now I have to sign. Now I'm scared. And I feel this right hand on my shoulder. And it just gives me a little squeeze. And I turn around and I look into the eyes of a nurse over the top of his mask. Can't see his face, but there's his name tag, Bruce. With that one touch, hello, brother. Hello, fellow being. I got your back. I reached down, I placed my hand on my wife's head, and I began to pray, asking for God's blessings and grace on her surgeons, her nurses, and all who would take care of her during the surgery. We're both in tears, we're so frightened. And the nurse on the other side of the bed looks at me and says, Amen, brother. Amen. Three sincere, heartfelt words. Amen, brother. Amen. My wife is taken off to surgery. I sit and I wait for four and a half hours by myself. After that time, the surgeon comes out, tells me what has taken place. My wife's intensive care will then be brought later to her room but I cannot go and visit her because visitors were not allowed in because of the virus. I go home. I walk across the parking lot looking for another human being just to make eye contact. No one's there. I get into the house. I call her adult daughters, tells what happened with Priscilla, my wife and their mother. And then about eight o'clock at night, I call the nurse's station. And the nurse tells me that my my wife is now back in the room and she'll have three nurses who will take care of her all night long. I go back 24 hours later to pick her up. They did not even want to keep her more than a day because of the virus at that time. And as we're driving home, she said she was given wonderful care by these three nurses, two of whom I had taught at Viterbo. Wow. The goodness that I tried to reflect into their lives, they had therefore reflected into the life of my wife. So a thought reap an action, so an action reap a habit, so a habit reap a character, so a character reap a destiny. And that's what happens with with goodness. Goodness is a virus. It, It spreads throughout our organizations and through our institutions. And how important and necessary that is. Put your nickel down on goodness. What I'm telling people right now, save the criticism until after the pandemic. There'll be plenty of time to get caught up on the criticism. Right now, what are we doing to support each other to get through this? Now, I've been asking people on Zoom for the last year in meetings like this, well, give me two words as to how you're feeling. What we've learned is pretty much to pair it back to each other. Oh, I'm fine. Oh, I'm good. 
Oh, I'm fine. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Terrible. Well, that's good. We walk right past it. And, and it's, I kind of liken it to an ice, iceberg. 10% is above the water and 90% is below. So when you ask people, okay, give me two adjectives, how to describe how you're feeling right now. This is what I've heard predominantly. Exhausted, overwhelmed, anxious, restless, sad, depressed. Every once in a while, I get a grateful and a hopeful. But each of us is struggling. Each of us is struggling. This has given us cause to be that much more emotionally vulnerable and honest with each other so we can respond in kind. Hello, brother. Got your back. Small acts of kindness, small acts of goodness, levels in terms of recognition is helping all of us to get through this pandemic. And all of us have stories like this that we will always remember. In his new book, Life in Transition, Bruce Feiler talks about this. Bruce uh, is an author and has, a, has had things on PBS. And his new book came out last June, went right to the top of the New York Times bestseller list because the whole world is in transition right now. And we very seldom talk about transitions. We talk about beginnings, we talk about endings, but very seldom we talk about the transitions in our life. And yet they are so important. So talk, what to us, talk to us about what are these key transitions uh, well, that happens in life? Well, they're, they're both personal and collective. They're, they're things that happen to us individually. And like I said earlier, the whole world is going through a town now collectively, communally. Everybody, this is an equal opportunity virus <laughs> you know, across the globe. We've, we've, we're doing things differently. Now, uh, transitions, it gives us the wonderful word, life quakes. You know, and what is that? What does that mean? What is life? Our, our life, our, our life is kind of shook up. It's not like what it was. Much like you use the term earthquake, it kind of moves the foundation. Well, life quake does that for us. And what he as he began to recognize this in people's lives, we go through about five transitions in our adult life from age twenty to seventy, and each transition takes about five years. So, for instance, one of the big life quakes. Uh, going off to college. Sure. Those years, 18 to 25, and some of our people who are listening right now know what that's like. You just feel like it's never going to end. In fact, we even call that right now quarter life crisis. But how important that transition is. During transitions, you have senses of identity. You have to have the deep questions in terms of who am I? Where am I going? But this happens in terms of when people are, are retiring. You see people going through a level of transition, changing jobs which is happening more and more. Thinking about changing and going to a different part of the country, relocating is a, is a major level of, of transition. And we find ourselves, uh, it, it's, 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 a difficult, it's a difficult point of view. Collectively in this country, the transition of power from one administration to the next. These are, these are difficult times, emotionally charged because our lives are changing. And so Bruce Feiler paid attention to this. Now, one of the things that's interesting, we don't talk about transitions, again, because we don't want to tell anybody else that we're struggling. We have this kind of this nonsense that we're kind of independent, autonomous, and have to always be strong, which is false. All of us struggle. So Filer, at age 42, is diagnosed with a rare pediatric form of bone cancer. Because of that, he could die. So he asks his, his, uh, his friends if they'd be willing to be surrogate fathers for his twin daughters who are six. 
He knows if he dies, his daughters are going to need um, male role models. And so they begin, they call it a council of dads. And they commit themselves to helping to shape and to form and support each other's children. Well, he beats the cancer and he writes about this experience, Council of Dads, that is a bestseller. And then it's going to be on NBC uh, probably later this fall. Well, what happens, he gets invited back to his 20th college reunion. And now because he's an author and he's going to teach, they ask him if he'd be the facilitator for a panel of, of people that are, are there. And they all come in and they got their resumes. You know, you go back to your 20th, you want to impress everybody with what you've accomplished. He, and he takes their, their resumes, he holds them up and he rips them in half. He said, these contain all your successes. Tell your moms, they'll be quite happy with it. The rest of us want to know what have you struggled with? And all of these people in the last 20 years start talking about their struggles. That night, there's a, a banquet, there's a bar at one end of the tent, there's plate, food at the other end. It takes them two hours, but time to get a drink to get, they get a plate of food because everywhere along the line, people come up and they want to talk about their struggles. All of us have them. And what's happened this last year? All of us have struggled. No one has been immune. All of us have been touched. And so he goes back and he, he begins what's called a life story project. And he begins to do research. What are the things that help people through transition in their lives? Like I said, we go through five of these, taking four or five years during our adult lives. What are the things that we can, we can know as markers? And these are the three things that begin to take place when you're going through a transition. One, A is agency. Agency. It's our work. It's our projects. It's the things in which we try to build or rebuild. See, what's really been difficult for people going through this is having to find new things to do. How many of us came in when we had so little control, but you make a list of things in which you, you had to do or things you've been putting off on, and it's just extraordinary, the levels in terms of agency. Aristotle said, we are people in motion, people in action. And what's been very, what's been very difficult, we've had to move outside of the norm. We do work in a different way. We express ourselves in different ways. But the importance of agency gives us a sense of purpose and meaning in our lives. They found out in the 1950s, Betty Crocker started making, uh, you know, recipe cake box cake, boxes for you know for cakes, and uh, and people were using them, but were not satisfied with the product. Then the psychologist said, "Well." Instead of don't put don't put uh, dried eggs, make people put an egg in. And just by the fact that you had to have an had to add an egg to your box cake, gave people a much greater sense of agency because they were participating. They were doing something. IKEA, people go to IKEA because they like the challenge of putting together their own furniture. Or for somebody's going through transition to their first apartment, I built that. I put it together with IKEA. They understand the importance of agency. They have found that people who are living in nursing homes, if they're given a plant to take care of, as a sense of agency. What have we found within this country? People were hungry to have a pet who never had one before. Do you realize that about three weeks ago, the number one stock in the country was Chewy.com? <laughs> I mean, it's, but, but, but what, it, what it gives, a, a sense of purpose. Yeah. I have to take care of that dog rather than being by myself. 
Now that leads us the second part in terms of, of agency um, is, is a necessary importance in terms of belonging. So what have all of us been very conscious of this last year? It's been our relationships. Who are the people that we belong to? What we have found that the people who are able to man, manage the transition have doubled down in their friendships. You call your friends, you stay in contact with your friends. You can't have 526 friends. And you know that virtual friends, even though they're on the books, are not very satisfying. <laughs> we've all suffered from not being able to be with friends and family, to be have, have, have the social uh, you know, ability to contact each other. And yet, what did we find? We found ourselves going on walks to complete strangers and greeting each other, not just walking by. Hello, fellow human being. Our lives are both sacred and social. And the importance of belonging cannot be overemphasized. In fact, what do we know in terms of health? That if you report being lonely on a regular basis, it has the same physical effect as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. It's that, it's that destructive. One way in which you improve your health is not to quit, quit smoking, it's to join positive groups. So, Joe, one of the things that's happened is that even in the midst of pandemic, you have found ways in which to bring people together for the sense of belonging, the importance of terms of community, which is both primary and secondary. And the people that are suffering the most are people who feel that level of social isolation where there was no community. Just a note, Cleveland Clinic did a study, 40,000 children in Ohio they can't find. Not every kid checked in online. Families were migratory, looking for places to live, looking for jobs. The number of children whose parents had to go to work and they were left to fend for themselves because there's no daycare or childcare or, or youth programs. The loss of belonging for our young people will be one of the things that we're going to have to pay attention to. Our elders, think about how people have gone out of their way. Drive-bys, standing out on the lawn in front of a nursing home, waving to people. Think about how our doctors and our nurses and our CNAs held the hands of our beloved elders while they were suffering. So they didn't have to suffer alone. Extraordinary. And finally, a, B, C, it's a sense of cause, a sense of cause that I work for a higher purpose. Definition that I use for servant leadership, and it's my own mission statement, is to inspire and engage people to work for a greater good every day, a greater good every day. And so what have we found? Our service providers this last year, oftentimes were invisible to us, were they not? Our custodians, our bus drivers, our truck drivers, our forklift drivers, our clerks at our store, all were kind of invisible. We took their service for granted. What do we call them now? Essential. Mm. Um, I was down speaking at in Madison at the Monona Terrace just before the, just as the pandemic was hitting, I gave my last presentation live and then my first one live was last week after a year. And I, I saw a custodian there who was wiping down the door handles, was wiping the door frames, just cleaning everything. As best he could. And I said, sir, thank you for, 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 your, for your service. And he looked at me and said, I'm just loving my neighbor. 
And what we begin to recognize that service is love made visible. And we find that people who have gone to work in our restaurants, our fast food places, the people who have contributed to show up as, as custodians are working in warehouses. This is the way in which they were contributing to the greater good. The real heroes of a pandemic, farmers. Last March, they went out to their barns and their fields, not knowing what prices they would receive. Could you imagine the state of this country today if we didn't have enough to eat? And all of a sudden, why do they do it? Because you recognize that they're, they're feeding the nation, feeding the world, if you will, a sense in terms of, 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 of agency. So here are the ABCs. A, agency, is what I do for me. These are my tasks. B, belonging, is what does I do for we, the connection there. And C, cause, what do I do for thee? For a, for a purpose greater than myself. Now, what's really amazing, this all fills in with what Viktor Frankl had talked about years ago coming out of the Holocaust, man's search for meaning. Who are the people that survived? The people who had saw that they still had great work yet to do once they left the, the, the camps. He said, you could not have predicted based on physical or psychological measurements who came in and who was going to survive. But the people that survived still believed that there was great work to be done for a higher purpose. Now, going through this A, B, and C, what are the tools? What is it that you need to do to move through this? And this is what he's found by his research. One, storytelling. Have you been telling other people the stories about yourself? Think of the number of families that are now having family Zoom meetings. Last uh, July 4th, because of my wife's stroke, our daughters were very much concerned about their mother's health. And our daughter from New York City flew home and my daughter Madison picked her up and our daughter from Chicago came and they came and they met on her deck and they had their iPhones and a recorder. And they put together questions that they wanted to know about their mother's life and recorded it. And they asked about her growing up. And for the first time in 40 years of marriage, my wife talked about what it was like when she was four and her mother died. Wow. And her grandmother moved in. All these years, that loss as a little girl had been there, but had been unspoken. How many stories in their own family lives have been so painful that now they've come to the surface in the midst of the pandemic because we've had more time with each other. Things that had been maybe repressed have now been expressed. And that's really important for us to be able to tell and to listen to the stories of other people. Here is the, the, uh, the, the research. Children who know their family's life stories well are more resilient. Children who know their family's life stories well are more resilient. Well, Joe, and the work that you're doing in Profit Company, the work that you've always done, is connecting people to the stories of their organizations and their communities. It's what builds strength. Now I'm talking to a group of people over there on the eastern part of the state, and I always love coming over, not only to see Joe and to be in that area, but that's where my family was from. My, my grandfather, my father was born in Coleman, Wisconsin mm -hmm. in 1929. 
my grandpa, his wife, my grandmother, gave birth to her youngest son, and she died in childbirth. She knew it was going to be a difficult childbirth, so she arranged for her older brother in New York to adopt her infant son because he had no children. My grandpa lost his wife and son in a week. His oldest son he sent off to St. Norbert's, who then ran away to Florida. My aunt went to a convent. My dad was on the farm. In the mid-1930s, my grandpa married a widow with nine children. He was raising beef and 12 kids on rocky soil in northern Wisconsin. And it lasted to the end of the Depression. And his reward? His older sons were sent off to World War II, not to return until 1945. What is significant about this in our stories? All of us are descendants of survivors. Have you not, have you not borrowed from the strength of your ancestors? People have made sacrifices so that we have the lives that we have today. And isn't it extraordinary? Haven't we been willing to make those same level of sacrifices for the people entrusted to our care? Now it's our turn. Yeah, That's where that sense of resilience and strength comes from. But do we take the time to tell each other our stories? You know, Tom, I, I really appreciate you saying that because, yes, you're right. We Our work was in corporate purpose, which is super powerful. And as we've learned and gotten into a more individual coaching of executives and so forth, we've realized that their story is important and that they tell their story. Um, we just, I just had a, a gal in Texas who told her story for the first time. And it wasn't a story of uh, love and belonging. Uh, matter of fact, they shared with her through uh, Uncovery we did, you know, uh, you've heard of those 360 review type of things, but ours is more about love. Like, what do you appreciate about her? What is her strengths? Um, if you were her friend, what, what could she improve? These are the questions we ask for leaders because leaders don't hear, people don't hear what's beautiful about them. You know, it was really interesting. You talked about vulnerability. The biggest thing I pick up on is how they receive all the beauty that is presented to them. You know, we, we, we do these exercises. You think, well, what do I have to improve, right? And they're hearing things like, I love how she's dedicated to her family. I love how her family comes first and then work. I love how she guides us and leads us. She has a beautiful way of lightening the mood when things get stressful. And you could see her just tearing up as I'm presenting this information to her. And then what's so beautiful is we take the information and we start unpacking her story. And then we give them the courage to tell their story. They write it. We help massage it and tweak it for them. And they're nervous. They're scared to present their vision for what they see for the department or for the company or for a location while telling their story just with their tiny, just with their tribe, you know, their five folks that they lead. And what they find is after they share it, this huge weight goes off their shoulder. And the response that the people have is, I feel closer to you now than I've ever felt. You know, we think that's so scary to do. And I just think a life worth living is worth exploring and worth celebrating. And I think when I hear about your purpose of spreading goodness, my purpose 
is to teach acceptance in an unaccepting world, helping people, leaders first accept themselves for who they are, then they can start accepting others, but they have to accept themselves first. And it's just amazing to me, Tom, that the, the amount of educated uh, individuals I work with who still have, you know, some wounds like, like your wife's. Well, uh, it, it, we all do. I mean, that, yeah. that, that, that's a fact of the matter. We are human and we hurt. We've been hurt and we hurt other people. That, that's part of, and what, now that we had more time alone and not been able to uh, escape ourselves, we were coming to that realization. And uh, it's a, a wonderful sense of humil- humility and humanity in the process. The word leader comes from the Anglo-Saxon word "ladeth," L-A-I-D-T-H, which means to step forward. So everybody that we're talking to right now is a leader. They, all of us have stepped forward in some way or another. But L-A-I-D-T-H is also the root word for the word load. So when you step forward and you're the leader, you also bear the burden. You bear the load of the people that trusted to your care. And, and what's really powerful in all this, and you notice this in your work, many leaders, we grew up with this proverb, it's lonely at the top. Well, guess what? It's lonely at the top. So who, where is it that somebody who's taken on a leadership role has a group of people that they can trust and share their own life story. This is what I've struggled with. This is who I am. I can be no other. Leadership is who you are, management is what you do, and all of us have a story. But those stories are deeply woven in the context of our own life experience. The second way tool is to move through a transition in terms of rituals. Rituals are so important in our lives because they mark our lives as, as sacred time. What have we all missed this last year? Well, as grandparents, we miss Christmas. We're going to get a chance to go to our first birthday party after a year for our granddaughter. Ask grandparents right now how they've missed those moments with their family more than anything else. What have we noticed in the paper? You read obituary, a celebration of life will be held at the later date. The postponement of rituals. Fourth of July, we still found a way to have fireworks, but didn't you miss the parades and the gatherings in the community or in the neighborhood? And isn't it interesting? One of the things that the president's pointed out to us, maybe by the 4th of July, let's have a picnic with our family members, our ritual to reclaim our, our belonging. You know, not, not a shopping holiday, <laughs> right? but a couple of brats and a beer, the, the ritual that you've missed in Green Bay of, of Packer games and how that, well, you look at the things that our, our lives are very ritualized and, and, they've, and they've gone away and now we have to kind of recapture. Well, the same thing in terms of, of businesses. What are the rituals you're gonna have when you're gonna bring people back into the office? How are you gonna ritualize your corporate life when some of you are in person and some are remote? This is what I'm hearing all the time right now. How do you bridge those gaps? Where do you find moments for celebration and recognition, affirmation, and in paying attention to our grief. And there's a tremendous amount of grief in America today. Third, the third way in which you move through transition is you have to be creative. Find new ways of doing things. And all of us have. So one of the things you might want to ask the people that you work with, what are creative activities that you're engaged in today that you were not doing a year from now, a year ago. Well, in La Crosse, you cannot find any sourdough starter. People are baking like crazy, like they've never 
baked before. They're rediscovering family meals. I asked this to a member, members of our faculty, how have you been creative this last year? It's been stressful teaching online, much less having people learn online in terms of Zoom. My favorite question right now is my students, do you have any more room for Zoom? And most of them, no. <laughs> but what it, in order to do this kind of work in a new way, you've had to find personal ways in which to be creative. Well, I asked, I asked this a few, one people said, well, we, we, we've discovered stained glass. And on the weekends, we're, 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 doing, we're buying stuff off of Craigslist, we're doing stained glass. Oh, is that kind of kept on? One woman said, I'm Irish, but I never knew much about my Irish heritage. I make an Irish meal once a week. Another guy starts saying, you know, I used to play the guitar and I, I just pulled it out and I'm starting to play. And my 15 year old son, who I was having some difficulty with, kind of got interested. So I got him a used guitar and my son and I are playing music together. We both have the calluses to show for it. And it's really extraordinary what you have found. People are having dance parties in their homes. People are finding board nights again. Isn't it rather amazing? A generation we thought we could never get off their phones are excited. You cannot buy a cribbage board in the state of Wisconsin. What are the different ways in which we become creative? Finding ways in which to recreate, basis of recreation, recreate our spirits so that we have the energy to do the work that's given to us. For myself, um, I have a radio show on WDRT 91.9, Viroqua, Wisconsin, every Monday morning, Conspiracy of Goodness. My friend Larry Long, who's a folk singer, he was a personal friend of Pete Seeger's, uh, and he sings songs, and I tell stories. Last week, our, our program, and you can get it on archive, was on spring, and I read poetry, and he sang songs about spring. And uh, this week, we're going to go in, we're going to talk about our elders, uh, we're, we're going to talk about uh, Mother's Day. Uh, it, it's just amazing. We just take themes, a conspiracy of good. Oh, I have never thought of that. Well, these are being made now into podcasts. So all of a sudden, here I thought, oh, I'm not speaking to anybody. And now I'm finding myself having different audiences. Yeah. Who would have thought at 70 years of age, um, I'd come back to, um, to who I always, always was. Now, here's what's how, it, how our stories are all connected. After World War II, my dad returned to Coleman, Wisconsin. And the job that he had in Coleman, Wisconsin, I think he'd go over to Peshtigo in the morning, and he was the morning DJ in Peshtigo. <laughs> and then he'd come home and set up pins at the bowling alley. Ten bar, and then get up the next morning and uh, be on the radio again. Isn't it amazing? Wow. We become who we always were. But it's that, that's, this is the ways in which we move through transition by knowing our stories, by celebrating our rituals, and finding ways in which to be creative uh, together. Well, that is, you give us so much, you just give me hope. You give, I know you give so many people hope, Tom. I want you to tell people about your place of grace, because this was just a magical, um, a magical environment that when I first met Tom, and we've known each other for uh, over a decade, um, he says, I want, to, I want to show up at this address. And it was, it was an unassuming home. And I walked in and he goes, start chopping those vegetables. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I don't quite get it. But I'm like, what is this? It just looks like a, ni a nice home, comfortable home, living room, dining room. And I'm chopping vegetables and there's people there and they're making big pots of soup. And I'm like, oh, we're expecting some guests. He goes, yep. Go, How many? However many show up. So tell them a little bit about 
the place of grace. Yeah, it's a place of grace. It's a, it's a Catholic worker hall, so house of hospitality. And because we haven't been able to have uh, meals, people in the house, you know, protecting people's safety, we have a couple of young people that are living in the house right now. We're doing everything out of doors. And so we'd have our prayer meeting in the back in the backyard in the garden. Um, we we uh, have picnics outside, and then what what happens is that uh, the number of people in our community who would go to the warming shelter have now been uh, housed by La Crosse County at a at a hotel. And but there's no food, and so every Thursday we make our meals and we bring them up to the people that are living at that hotel, kind of a community a community meal. We also have a food pantry. And I want to make this point very clear. People in our country are hungry for a number of different reasons. Elderly people on fixed incomes having to make the choice between cost of medication and food. People who are working minimum wage jobs. Do I pay for my gas or do I, where can I get some food? I, I met a woman a couple of weeks ago before my accident. She had walked around the block three times and she finally looked at me in a tear-filled voice. She said, I'm so ashamed. I've never had to ask for food before, but my 11-year-old girl is just so hungry. I said, please come in. And so we still offer our pantry. We give people a bag and allow them to come in and take whatever they need. And what's really amazing, people are very, very cautious because they understand there's so many other people that are in need as well. And so it's become this amazing level of trust in the community. The amazing level, and this, Joe, this has been your life's work, of giving back dignity and how difficult it is for each of us to ask for help. So one of the things that Priscilla and I have learned this last year is this. There's no shame in having to ask for help. No, I just, uh, matter of fact, I just had a conversation with uh, a profiteer about asking for help. I mean, in a, just a, a work setting. And um, I just redefined that asking for help is a sign of intelligence. It's a it's, it's, it means you're human. It shows your strength, not your weakness. And, and we've just been taught wrong things that just doesn't feel right, that, that shouldn't be able to get help. And yet you're willing to help others. I want to talk, Tom, a little bit about personal purpose. You know, teaching acceptance on accepting world guides, guides my light. That's my true north. Uh, spreading, spreading uh, goodness to the world. Talk about how important that is for people to explore themselves and define what they're all about. What does well, that do for you? One word that's coming back into our vocabulary again is the word vocation. Okay. But what is it that I'm called to do? You know, so for so often we looked upon work as being a job or some people say, well, it's my career and we, we occupied all of our time there. And all of a sudden we found that we, we, you know, work could not occupy all of our time. But what is it that I'm called to do? I love this term from Frederick Beekner, where your deep gladness meets the world's deep pain. What deep needs, where, the, where your gladness meets the world's deep needs. And all of a sudden you begin to recognize that, that wherever there's joy, um, you're in the presence of goodness. So always look for what is it that, that brings you joy? Happiness uh, you can buy or pleasure, but joy is just a gift. And what are those joyful moments in the activity that you're engaged in? Uh, we don't say this enough to younger people. Uh, certainly you're going to have to work hard, but there also is moments of joy. Yeah. Unexpected goodness. 
somebody else's kindness is, is so terribly important. James Clear in his, in his research has, has shown that we cannot change people's minds with data or definitions. Isn't it rather interesting? You want to be data and definition. Well, I'm going to just change them. I'll just give them all the facts and they'll change. That was true. Everybody in the country stopped smoking. The one thing that changes people's minds is kindness. So if I'm at odds with somebody, instead of trying to give them all the, all the data, all, 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 all my reasons, and this is what happens now with political part, partisanship, sit down and have lunch with each other. Find out what is it that you have in common. Be kind to each other. Kindness comes from the same rat, root word as the word kin, to treat each other as a, as a brother and a sister. And in that way, it opens up possibilities. Yeah, we so, define kindness versus nice, you know. And I say nice is like you're, you're dining with a bunch of people and they get ketchup on their face and you don't say anything and you pretend it's not there. Kindness is to grab a little napkin and go right there, just a little, they go, thank you, right? And we, we sometimes pretend kindness, speaking the truth, sharing dignity, um, which is love. It, it is. And so you begin to recognize the level in terms of purpose. Think about our mothers and our grandmothers. They invested themselves completely in ourselves. Why? They wanted a, a better life for us. They were willing to make sacrifices on our, on our behalf. Think about the young people who continue to sign up for the United States military. It's a sense of vocation. Please let us remember Officer Talley in Boulder, Colorado. Seven children, a computer programmer who wanted to provide public service as an officer of the law. Doing it for a higher sense of purpose. And that's what we have to constantly remind each other. What is it that I'm called to do at, the, at this moment? And we find that happening right now. And one person has put on there. That's absolutely correct. Is that younger people are looking for that sense of a purpose. And so all of us who are a little bit older need to spend time seriously listening to the questions of young people and helping to identify what are their strengths. But more importantly, what is your purpose? What is your purpose? Now, it's interesting to note, my daughter who does uh, market research for a group in, in, uh, on, in New York, a, a di digital uh, bustle magazine, digital, they digital platforms, they research young adults. Know what they're finding, Joel? Our young people today, people like your, your wonderful son, Alex, they want a culture of empathy a culture of care and a culture of compassion. Can I, it's, I, just, I, it's just rather extraordinary. And they see the interconnectivity of all of our social issues that demand empathy. And I think this is what's gonna happen in the transition so the people who are still listening, the people who were treated well by their employers this the past year will never forget it. In fact, all of us will remember 2020. Wow. And how we were treated. But the people who are not treated well, they can't wait for the economy to bust open because they're headed out the door. <laughs> it's in the time of struggle that the kindness feels, gives so much hope to people. Um, we, we came up with a compassion plan and, and Danica and I, you know, we have our beliefs and, and what we did was we brought together a few key leaders in our company and said, you guys come up with it. You're, what is the compassion plan? 
We obviously have to get things done. We have to keep things moving. Um, so devise a plan that can help create comfort uh, and be, be uh, reasonable to allow us to execute for our clients. And they put together such a beautiful plan. And uh, it's, it's just a, it just shows that we have to be real with these things. No matter what our opinion is, feeling, emotional, and personal, you have to listen to people. We have to show empathy. And that's what you're talking about. You're talking about not sympathy, not feeling sorry for or, or being caught in the drama, but empathy, saying that this is real. We know, we know there are concerns and we're going to make these adjustments. And we feel these adjustments are safe and they're for the, the well-being of the entire group. Um, you know, I think sometimes, I think we have some questions here too. So April, uh, maybe you could chime in and, and what are some, uh, what are things on some folks' mind that perhaps we can, we can talk about? Yeah. Um, hey guys, uh, one thing that, that was mentioned in the chat, and I think it's just really poignant and worth, um, mentioning Judith here. Uh, I'm just going to read it. And I think, I think Tom, um, if you could maybe just speak to this, I think it would be really enlightening to several others says there are many young adults who are completing degrees that were started in a different world. They have significant investments, not just financial, in career paths that may no longer be viable. Are there mentors out there uh, who are willing to walk with them through this transition? It cuts to the core of who they, who they thought they were and were going to be. Many are feeling completely disoriented and lost in terms of their career paths. I think a really unique perspective from Judith. Judith, I would also like to ask before Tom Springboard's on that, perhaps you could uh, type it in the chat. Um, if you're involved in some sort of uh, score or you're a college professor, or is there a group of these individuals? Is it a, is it a son? Is it a daughter? It'd be really, uh, oh, she works at NWTC. Okay, so that's, a, that's the tech college where you're learning specific um, specific skill set, um, and she has a son completing his master's. Go ahead, Tom. What are your thoughts? Well, um, th this is the role of uh, elders in the society. Uh, elders in the society have always invested themselves in the lives of those who are young. Um, I'm 70. I've done everything I'm going to accomplish in a lifetime. The only reason you should listen to a 70-year-old guy like myself is to encourage younger people like yourselves to continue to develop your gifts and your abilities. Now, what's really extraordinary is this. We do not teach our younger people, look for a coach, look for a mentor, look for a trusted adult. And then for those of us who are of that age to make ourselves available to the young. I mean, this is a very critical time. The young people now are going through this level in terms of the transition. This is what this is what the major transition is going through, and it's personal, but it's collective. The whole generation of people are going through this transition, so we need to have people who are going to walk with them through that time, to be with them, saying, "Been there, done that, bought a T-shirt." Yeah, and and all of a sudden you 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 gain strength from one another. That's when I go back in terms of our own families. There's a whole field called epigenetics. That not only is our, our physical traits passed down, but our, but our character traits. And we see that in, in people's lives and people's families, as well as the trauma that gets passed down. All that's there. But we need to have people who are willing to work with younger people. 
Um, in one of the companies on the eastern side of the state, they have a position called a dream coach. And I, I learned this at a, a, I was speaking on leader, servant leadership at an engineering conference. And somebody said, what's a dream coach? And the guy said, well, it's to help our employees um, fulfill their dreams. He said, can you give us an example? He said, well, we had a woman working for us who's 35 years of age, and she was adopted. And she always wanted to meet her natural mother, but had no idea as to how to do it. So the dream coach sat down, and they developed a plan, and they found her mother, and they were able to set up a, a reunion meeting of the two. And then he said, what do you think that person now thinks about our company? Do they think that they're loyal? To work for a company that was very much concerned that you get a chance to be reunited with your birth mother, to bring that kind of healing into your lives. And this is what's, what's it's really important. We have to see ourselves as working with the dreams of, of the next generation, not being so self-absorbed and thinking about ourselves. All of us who are older, we're going to be just fine. Our role now is to commit ourselves to the next generation. What are the sacrifices that we are willing to make to be involved in their lives? Um, and I think that this is a, a, a very important. I think we have to start teaching college faculty. I think we have to start teaching people in businesses how to be coaches and mentors for the next generation. Now, coaches are people that can be assigned, but we all choose our mentors. I want to make that point because these terms get mixed up and they make it difficult. We all choose our men, somebody that we want to emulate. And here are the four characteristics of a, of a mentor. One, a mentor is somebody who sponsors us. So when you come in and you have a mentor, they bring you into the position. They bring you into the organization. They bring you into the profession and they sponsor you. They speak on your behalf. Two, a, a, a mentor is a scholar. They read the signs of the times. They know what's going on. They have street smarts. They can tell you how you need to navigate what your next steps might be. Three, they're a teacher and a guide. They, they can teach you skills that you do not have and are willing to do that because they've taken the time to listen to you. But I love the, the, the last term that I will use. It's, it's a Gaelic term, anamakara. Right? It comes from the Gaelic, the West Coast of Ireland, the monks, all had an anamakara, a soul friend. Somebody that you could just come to and bear your soul so you didn't understand that you were alone. And I think that there's so many people going through struggles today who could just use a soul friend. Somebody who will listen to them, be that authentic and honest in terms of who they are, and listen to the questions that they have about themselves. This yeah. is not going to be found online. This is not a virtual relationship. This is the ways in which we invest ourselves in each other's lives. So servant leadership, I love this term from Master Phrase, says servant leadership is a process of being involved in the messiest parts of other people's lives. Yeah, I always say leadership is a personal invasion of someone else's life because you just mm -hmm. want to know. You want to help. You have to know each other's stories. Judith, there are some resources like if you ever, you're, I'm, pretty, I'm sure you're familiar with SCORE because I believe it's on your campus too where they have mentors there for folks who are starting these businesses. And I think Tom, you're, um, you've, you've enlightened me in saying, find the mentor. You know, we can't wait around to be picked. Um, we have to raise our hand and reach out uh, mm -hmm. to, to find a mentor. And that could be closer than you think. If you really think who you connect with, it could be a family friend. It could be, 
an aunt or an uncle that you're going to dig deeper with. Um, but it's, it's taking responsibility for finding wisdom. And you know what? It's kind of like the first step in transition. You said agency, get moving, do something, right? When you're reaching out, when you're, when you're looking at your mentor, that's also getting you activated. It's activating you into action. You're not sitting around hoping and waiting. You're actually making things happen, which builds your character. Um, so I think that's, that's, uh, Wonderful wisdom, Tom, uh, to share is something I didn't think about of seeking your mentor rather than waiting to be picked. April, anything yeah. else? That's great information, you guys. Thank you so much for that. Um, also, uh, an another question uh, for you, Tom. Do you foresee that life will just have a tendency to return to how it used to be as we move further away? from 2020 or are there some things that you think have changed and they will change permanently? Well, I, 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 I hesitate. Everybody's talking about normal or the new normal. And I think that's, it's a way in which to make ourselves feel comfortable to get getting to getting back to what we thought or, or much like people talk about the good old days. Well, the good old days weren't all that good and they're not coming back anyway. It's <laughs> going, it's, it's going to be different. It's going to be different. And I think that like every experience, we have to assess for ourselves what has been meaningful and valuable and in which ways are we different. I'll give you an example. A year ago, March 24th, our lives are different. My wife and I both recognize that we're that much more fragile. So in terms of long-term arguments, who has the time? How foolish. We've changed. And we have to kind of we have to talk about that that a change in our lives. Think about it for just a moment. Uh, telemedicine is here to stay. Um, hybrid courses on college campuses or Zoom classes that will be available all year long has changed. We even have the nature now of master classes. You can study. You can take a class at one o'clock in the morning if you'd like. I mean, all these things have changed, but we have to be able to navigate for ourselves. What is it that's going to be meaningful for ourselves? What are the things that we have learned about ourselves in the midst of the pandemic, both individually and communally? And I, one of the things I hope that we've come to realize, everyone's work and contribution is significant. Yeah. We have different roles, different levels of responsibility, but everyone's contribution is significant. Also, what have we learned this last year? Every human being, every human being is deserving of human dignity. No human is more human than another human. And so all these things, you know, can really have lasting effects if we choose to embrace them. Now we have to make sure this is the greatest temptation of every leader, distraction getting pulled apart. And so what's going to come, come, we know this to be true in the next nine months, there'll be all kinds of opportunities that hadn't existed previously. You're going to have to be very discerning as which ones are you going to choose to act on. Great things to think about. April, anything else that uh, um, comes to mind that, uh, that has been shared? This has been fantastic. I think people are just sucking it all in. I mean, it's, just, it's like, Sitting, 
sitting on the porch with uh, with a very wise person. You just sit on the ground and you just let it all come over you. Uh, so I don't have any other um, any other questions. Um, uh, but I do have one from myself that I that I'm curious about that I'm going to ask. Um, in terms of belonging, and and uh, Tom, you had stated that there's that's something that we'll have to pay attention to um, as we move forward um, with generations that have have lost that feeling of belonging. What are some methods that you um, that you that you use or that you think are good methods to um, kind of bring some of that sense back for young people in particular? Uh, okay. Um, um, we spend 66% of our adult lives at work. I think workplaces are people, a chance for people to get an opportunity to belong, to use their gifts and abilities, and for, for older people to pay attention to younger people and not to criticize, but to kind of coach them up, tell them what they're good at. Help them to discover how do you work within your own limitations. I heard a marvelous presentation from the people, Courtesy Corporation, lacrosse has 62 McDonald's stores. And, and it's amazing how they're investing themselves in young people. First, it's very difficult to recruit. And secondly, how to retain them. And they find that by creating a sense of community at work it is, is what's really attracting people and keeping them there. Um, in the city of lacrosse, uh, amazing. Right along the river, we have a new band shell that was constructed for a, a project called Moon Tunes, started by a Rotary Club. And they invite a different rock and roll group or a different musical group down to the river every Wednesday night. And people come out their lawn chairs and you have three to 5,000 people coming. Now, I want to just tell you this. Also, we have to change our mindset. I am just so sick and tired of people talking about how divided America is. We can start and focus on divisions, but let's just talk with each other. Uh, anyone online right now who doesn't want clean water? Anybody is, is against a safe, affordable food? Who doesn't want a good road to drive on? Who doesn't want to have a good, a, a good workplace? Who, who doesn't want the best education possible for their children or health care available for their families? Let's look in terms of what brings us together. And what I found brings us together? Music. Isn't it amazing? The levels in terms of celebrations, public celebrations in which you come together. And, and that's why we create these environments that are safe enough for us to, to, to be in the company of strangers. And we have to be that conscious about it. The, the core kernel of American democracy is the neighborhood. And what have people discovered this last year? Walking out, seeing their neighbors paying attention to the person living by themselves, making sure that their grass is cut and their snow is shoveled and they have cookies every once in a while. Who has young children in the neighborhood? And what happens is that this is where we're finding a way in which to kind of re-kind of uh, invigorate our communities by paying attention to those people who are in our own purview. Great stuff. Um... As always, um, I'm just so grateful for you, Tom. Uh, Tom's probably been the most frequently uh, requested speaker that we have had. Typically, we had a tradition for about, I don't know, eight years, Tom, where in November, you would come yeah. around, right? It was November, and everyone got to figure out that Tom was going to be around in November. Um, and then, of course, the COVID year, we, we tried other things, like the 30-minute yeah. slowdowns and doing all these different things. I just want to thank you so much, Tom. 
uh, for sharing your wisdom, reminding us how trans transitions, life transitions. I've written down every five years there's transitions. Um, and, and the three areas are uh, agency, uh, what is it, purpose Me, and cause? A, 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 ABC, agency, belonging, cause. Me, we, the. And, and, the, and, the, and the tools, navigating transition, pay attention to the stories, find ways which to celebrate rituals, and nurture your creativity. And so thanks again for being here. We wish you well. We wish you and Priscilla the best of health as you, as you get back. And I know you will um, because the world needs you. Oh, take care. Thank everyone. you very much. Very good to be with you.